Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, a familiar presence on Behind the News, the economist and former Greek finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis. We'll talk about life under COVID-19, the class fissures it exposes so luridly, the insane austerity politics that dominate the EU, vulture investors stripping bare a still broke Greece, and the democracy in Europe movement's plan for reviving that continent. First, a few notes in the present crisis. On Thursday morning, the Labor Department announced that 5.2 million people applied for unemployment benefits in the week ending April 11. That's down by over a million from the previous week, but is still fiendishly high. Before this crisis hit, something like 220,000 people a week were applying. Over the last four weeks, 22 million people have filed applications, and as of April 4th, 12 million were drawing benefits. That's up almost sevenfold from a month earlier. The numbers suggest that when the April jobs report is released on May 8th, the unemployment rate will be 15% or higher. It was under 4% in February. It took about two years after the 1929 stock market crash to reach 15% unemployment. We're compressing that trajectory into two months. Congress may have passed a $2 trillion rescue package, but the thing is way too heavy with aid to big business and way too light with assistance to people and to hospitals which are laying off people in the midst of a health crisis and to state and local governments, which are on the verge of savage cuts. Over the longer term, we need a Green New Deal more than ever to get a handle on climate change, rebuild our collapsing infrastructure, and institute a civilized safety net. None of that looks to be on offer. The small business assistance component to the rescue package, which was plagued with administrative difficulties from the start, is already out of money. A new working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research reports in a survey of almost 6,000 small businesses. It finds that nearly half were closed, at least temporarily, and they've laid off 40% of their employees. And most are on the edge of insolvency. The typical small business in the survey had less than one month's worth of cash on hand. However this ends, there are going to be millions of small businesses that won't be there to reopen and rehire. And another new NBER paper reports that in the decade after the last Great Recession, four in ten Americans spent at least one year in official poverty, and many of them cycled in and out of it. Of those who were under the poverty line, which I should say is a very low bar, the average time spent there was three years. Contrary to cliché, the hardest hit by persistent poverty were not the young, but the over-65s. Not so okay, Boomer. Obviously, these numbers are about to swell enormously. Yanis Varoufakis was first in this show in December 2008, talking about riots in Greece in the early days of that country's economic crisis. Here we are, more than a decade later, and Europe is plunging back into economic crisis, though it never really got out of it. From the early 1980s through the first decade of the 2000s, Yanis was mostly an academic economist, teaching in Britain, Australia, and Greece. With the eruption of the Euro crisis, he became an increasingly public and political figure. He briefly served the Syriza government as its finance minister in early 2015, handling negotiations with an intransigent group of ministers from the hard-money creditor countries led by Germany, but with considerable assistance from the Netherlands and other hotbeds of financial orthodoxy. The so-called Troika, the European Commission, the European Central Bank, and the IMF, presented him with an ultimatum, sign an austerity deal or they would let Greece go under. He refused. The government, led by Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras, put the deal up for a popular referendum. The no side won by a huge margin, but Cyprus opted to sign the deal anyway. Varoufakis resigned and has since spent much of his time fighting against the politics of austerity and for a democratic renovation of the European Union. Towards that end, in February 2016, he and some colleagues launched the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025, known as DM25. He's also a member of the Greek Parliament. It's been a while, almost two and a half years, since Giannis was on Behind the News. I thought the global economic crisis and the intensified crisis within the EU was a good occasion to have him back on. Giannis Varoufakis. First of all, just how are you all doing? Are you all hiding in the bunker house? In isolation, with my wife and our dog, Mowgli. Privileged, totally and utterly privileged, because there is an army of people out there working so that those few privileged of us can be in isolation, you know, an army of garbage collection workers, of supermarket uh, 
uh, salespeople, of um, agricultural workers. So I feel very guilty for being in isolation, um, given that it would be impossible for me to be so if we didn't have all those people who simply don't have the right to isolate. Yeah, this disease certainly is exposing the fissures of class society in a very uh, lurid way. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, it is as if this piece of RNA, not even DNA, conspired to unveil the, the class structure of our world. And uh, how badly is the uh, disease hitting Greece? It's not too bad, judging by deaths. So we have fewer than 100, unlike Italy, Spain, of course, New York, and so on. The government was quite quick at introducing restrictions of movement and uh, quite ruthless, too. Uh, Our political party um, supported that because it was important, especially given the sorry state of our National Health Service, of our hospitals after 10 years, 11 years of austerity, to deal with the situation. We have less than 550 ventilators in the whole country. So if those were overwhelmed, would be in serious trouble. But I very much fear that a lot of people are going to die of hunger because the country, as you know very well, we've been talking about it, you and I now for years, Greece has been in the midst of a Great Depression for 11 years. Uh, So there's no fat to burn, uh, proverbially speaking. And um, this new wave of recession, of moneylessness, uh, we have a lot of people who will not get a single penny from the state because they are nowhere to be seen on any records, uh, on any databases. They've fallen through the cracks a long time ago. Oh, what is going to happen to them? What is happening to them as we speak? The big countries, of course, have launched pretty large-scale reflation packages or support packages. Uh, I imagine that's beyond the capacity of Greece. Well, it is beyond the capacity of the European Union. Yesterday, we had a Eurogroup agreement, which is um, going to go down in history as an exercise in in inanity uh, compared to the Donald Trump and Boris Johnson and, you know, the Japanese stimuli. Uh, We have had such a pathetic show of impotence by the Eurogroup yesterday. Um, Just to give you the numbers, uh, the total amount of uh, money injected into the economy, that is, you know, fiscal positive shock, as opposed to credit lines, is 0.22% of the euro area GDP. Now, um, it it would take a monumental effort to do worse than that. Well, that's like Michael Bloomberg's personal wealth. (laughs) Just alone, it's it's remarkable. That's quite right. So they they are putting 27.7 billion uh, whereas they are, um, you know, oh, celebrating. It, it is half Michael Bloomberg's personal wealth we're talking about here. It's remarkable. All right, let's uh, just talk about this crisis uh, more generally first before we get to the specifics of what they're doing, what do you propose. This is really not the conventional recession of the sort that I learned about when I was in college. You know, the overheating, central bank tightening, slowdown, mild contraction, quick recovery. It's not like the financial crisis-driven recessions uh, we saw in 2008, 2009, and afterwards, this is the real sector. People can't work. Supply chains are broken. Uh, there are going to be mass bankruptcies and closures of businesses. How do you think about and recover from something like this? Well, I, I believe that we would have recovered if um, the you know, global capitalist system was not in such a state of disrepair before the virus hit. If this was a properly functioning economy, uh, once the disease has been dealt with, Yes, we would all take a hit, but we would come out. The factories would start humming again. Uh, the, the shops would uh, fill with people again. And um, we would be back in the same way that, you know, when there's a war, after that, there is a quick recovery, um, especially if the government does what it takes in order to restore full employment quickly. Uh, but, uh, unfortunately, the 2008 crisis never went away. As you very well know, what happened was it morphed, it uh, mutated. The central bank money that was pumped into the financial sector operated like cortisone to to a cancer patient. So finance, Wall Street, uh, the city of London, Frankfurt, the banks, they were all refloated. There was a stupendous amount of liquidity in the corporate sector. Uh, They were not investing much. 
Uh, they used the extra liquidity to buy back their own shares, to indulge in mergers and acquisitions, in uh, private equity deals, uh, loading up companies, existing companies with huge amounts of debt and creaming off the profits. So that was the situation before the coronavirus. And the result of that was that we had a global capitalism with the highest level of savings and liquidity. And in relation to the available liquidity, the lowest level of uh, real investment in, the re in real stuff. That was before coronavirus. That's why the global economy was in a deflationary mode. The reason why you had up in last August, last September, you had $18 trillion worth of debt in negative yields, in negative interest rates territory. Uh, you only need to, to mention negative interest rates in capitalism to know that there is something very rotten in this particular kingdom. So the problem with COVID-19 is not so much the disruption which is huge, but one would like to think it won't last long. It is the fact that it's a pin that pricked a gigantic bubble of corporate debt uh, and zombified uh, banks and companies. Uh, and the result of that is that, you know, I very much fear that, yes, stock exchanges are going to bounce back very quickly once the news spreads that the virus spread has been contained. But this new liquidity that has been pumped into the financial sector and the corporate sector again by Trump, by Boris Johnson, by the Bank of Japan and so on, it's not going to translate into uh, real investment just like it didn't after 2008. And I suspect that the damage that would be done to the incomes of the middle class, the lower middle class, the working class, uh, is going to make this conversion of available liquidity into real investments, um, even uh, weaker, simply because financiers, uh, CEOs uh, look around, they see lots of people with very little money, much less than they had uh, even before COVID-19 hit, and they say, mm, I'm damned if I'm going to invest. They won't be able to buy my stuff. Some others will buy some more of my own shares. So, you know, we, we had a bubble economy. The bubble was not confined in the financial sector as it was in 2008. It was spread out uh, far wider because of central bank policy. And now very much fear that once we begin the recovering, uh, we are going to be even less capable of uh, converting liquidity into investment. Central banks, at least our Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, are throwing a lot of money at this problem. Uh, the uh, Fed's balance sheet is going to approach $20 trillion before too long. Uh, the Bank of England is buying uh, gilts directly from the British Treasury uh, rather than going through the markets. What is the limit of that kind of finance? At what point does this central bank uh, magic money just uh, become, become black magic rather than anything else? Well, the answer is when the real economy reaches its productive limit, its capacity. As long as there is huge excess capacity in the real economy, they can keep doing this uh, more and more and more. And it makes no difference whatsoever. The inflationary uh, moment hits only once you hit full capacity and then you keep pumping money into the economy. But that we are so far away from this. This is of dubious stimulative power, though. I mean, we saw QE back in the, in, in the uh, you know, the five, seven years ago, uh, maybe added a tenth of a point to GDP growth, but isn't very powerful. These kinds of extraordinary central bank actions really don't do much to stimulate the real sector, do they? They just preserve and expand finance. That is correct. This is exactly, exactly the point I was making before about creating a huge bubble, which bursts now with COVID-19. But it's, you ask what are the limits to which they can do what they're doing, and I think that there are no limits as long as um, there is a large excess capacity in the real economy. The, the other question that you just asked is a quite different question, is how do you push uh, production up? How do you employ people again? How do you reach the limits of your capacity? Uh, and you're quite right. QE is not going to do that. It's not going to do it in the way that it has. they have been trying to do it. Uh, refloating and refloating and refloating finance is not going to work. There has to be a direct injection of uh, investment funding in a New Deal kind of way uh, directly into um, physical capital. So, for instance, uh, our movement, DiEM25 in Europe, have been pro uh, proposing that uh, the European Investment Bank issues um, something like 5% of um, the euro area GDPs in bonds. The ECB buys them, so that's a form of QE. 
But the difference with uh, the current form of QE is that this 500 billion, half a trillion every year, goes into a reconstruction fund. And then you have direct uh, projects like creating uh, renewable energy networks across uh, Europe, building up the, the transport infrastructure and electrifying it. Uh, Eastern Europe has absolutely uh, no electrified trains to speak of. And uh, generally, you know, investing in public health, doing real stuff, providing real services and physical capital. That is the way to do it. That kind of QE that is coupled with the New Deal Works program, that would work. I'm speaking with the economist and anti-austerity campaigner Yanis Varoufakis. Now, of course, uh, the European elite, just like our elite, doesn't want any part of this. No, no, they, they, they're really not interested in anything that um, may create more bargaining power for the hoi polloi. Um, you, you know, like for years, I, I was struggling to find the answer to the pertinent question, and I couldn't. The pertinent question being, why is Germany so averse to the kind of public finance that would even raise the profitability of um, German industry? Because there's no doubt it would. There's no, no doubt that the New Deal program would increase the profitability very low profitability of German industry. It would take out of the doldrums, you know, the German insurance uh, sector, which is uh, crippled by negative yields, negative interest rates. And in recent months, I've been coming to see what the answer to that question is. And if I may share it with you for a moment. Oh, please, please. Uh, <laughs> something I wonder about myself. I just noticed that what a fantastic triumph for the oligarchy. The... Creation of the euro has been, because in one go, once they created the euro, uh, while on the one hand they had all the institutions that the United States has, that Britain has, like you know the FDIC, the um, the Federal Reserve, and so on, by which to print money, create money, shift money to the oligarchy, they had those, they created those. They didn't have them from the beginning, but very soon, once they needed them. Once the oligarchy was in trouble, especially after 2008, they created all these institutions, the European Stability Mechanism, the European, fin uh, um, what they call it, the European Financial uh, Stability Fund and various other uh, outfits. But while creating those, they destroyed every single public financial instrument that could be used by any elected democratically elected uh, politician, not just you know a Greek finance minister or prime minister, but also the German chancellor for that matter, any financial interest instrument that could be used to shift significant amounts of wealth from the rich to the poor, from the oligarchy to the, to the common folk. Uh, this is something that is not the case in the United States. Uh, the, 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 you know, Congress, uh, the federal government, if they put their mind to it, they can do a new deal. They can shift loads of wealth onto the shoulders of, you know, from the rich to the poor, uh, if they want to, right? Not that they do, but, you know, the capacity is there. In the Eurozone, that capacity is absent. So even if you elected, you know, Jesus Christ, uh, God and her angels, and they wanted, you know, um, Thomas Piketty, you know, Doug Hengood to be the <laughs> Chancellor of Germany, right? Uh, those good people would simply not have the instruments by which to effect um, a transfer of wealth or income from the oligarchy to the rest. Now, that is a stupendous triumph for the oligarchy. Do they not have the uh, instruments because they don't have the legal capacity or they're actually blocked from creating those instruments? Well, the, the legal framework blocks them from creating those instruments. So the discussion yesterday in the in the Eurogroup was very very clear. We needed Eurobonds. We needed something like a U.S. Treasury bill across the, the Eurozone, you know. But the Dutch uh, finance minister, who is always, uh, you know, being more royalist than the king, that is more order liberal than the German finance minister, always um, is the avant-garde of um, neoliberalism in the Eurogroup meetings, kept pointing to the treaties by which the Eurozone was created. And the treaties are very clear. No debt mutualization. No instrument that allows for a single euro of debt to belong to more than one member state or to be backed by more than one member state. So the legality prevents the creation of any such instrument. And once you 
have a kind of federal monetary system without a federal fiscal system, then no democratically elected politician can actually shift much wealth from the rich to the poor. So if you are an oligarch sitting in happily and nicely in Frankfurt, in Hanover, in, in Paris for that matter, or in Rome, or in Milano, you think, my goodness, what an amazing achievement that has been of ours. We are the only um, state or block that we've managed to have all the trappings of financialized capitalism, all the public institutions that help us, the oligarchs, when we're in need, and not a single instrument that can be used to take money away from us and give it to the many, to the multitudes. Now, if you were in that position, would you readily give up that fantastic triumph just because there is a crisis? How clear are these things to uh, the average European? Uh, is it, or is it just so murky and hidden by the mystifications of uh, financial structures and all the, the gobbledygook of the EU legal system and all that? I mean, is it, is it clear or not? Well, it wasn't clear to me. It took me decades of thinking about it before I hit that particular insight. I don't know whether I'm right or not, or wrong in my insight, but you know, it's completely, completely opaque and utterly hidden. Um, and also, the, the beauty of this is that is that there was never any conspiracy. It was not that some oligarchs in some dark smoke-filled room back in the 1980s or 90s sat around the table and said, "Okay, now, folks, let's create." a system which um, has all the instruments for helping the oligarchy, but none that can help the middle classes and the working classes. No, it, it evolved. It evolved through a combination of ideology, of bad crisis management, of a terrible idea of um, maintaining a cartel of big business across Europe, which meant a common currency because, you know, cartels need a common currency. OPEC has the US dollar, uh, the European Union cartel, initially of uh, coal, steel, then automakers, farmers, banking, services, and so on. Yeah, that was a cartel. That's how the European Union was created. They needed a common currency after Bretton Woods was destroyed and the fixed exchange rates went out of the window. So they said, okay, let's pull this one together. But of course, we don't want a common debt. We don't want it. So the whole thing evolved surreptitiously. But at some point, the oligarchs, the smart ones, realized that this is a system that really suits them down to the ground. Even if you and I, or let's say that John Maynard Keynes is resurrected and with remarkable clarity and his usual analytical brilliance goes to them and explains to them why the common good is not served by this uh, particular architecture and that it, you know, the European Union is facing uh, the prospect of disintegration if they don't move away from this particular architecture, they will still think it's worth trying this out, you know, delaying it as much as possible, because it really suits us. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Quinn Slobodian had a paper uh, about uh, how some of the uh, neoliberals in the 70s opposed the a movement towards a more united Europe because they thought it was going to be some sort of socialist racket that would uh, violate all the neoliberal dreams. And the institution, as it's turned out, has been everything a neoliberal would want, um, a structure that insulates uh, economic policy from popular control completely uh, and opaquely, as you say. Was it just the times that made that happen? Yes, it's a combination. Well, firstly, uh, you're quite right. Um, Margaret Thatcher was, uh, uh, you know, the politician who famously feared that uh, the European Union was uh, a collectivist, socialist kind of project. And you know what? In a sense, that's how it was intended by those who, at least some of those who put together the Eurozone. Jacques Delors, who was one of the architects of the Euro, a uh, former finance minister of François Mitterrand in the early 1980s, who was you know, a social democrat who wanted to capture the Bundesbank, the Central Bank of Germany, and put it in, press it into the service of a kind of Keynesian European policy. He intended the euro to be like that. Thatcher and other neoliberals, as you mentioned, heard them, listened to them, and said, no, 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 we don't want to have a anything to do with this, and Thatcher famously, you know, effectively destroyed her prime ministership by opposing uh, Britain's entry into the euro because she was fearing that. But they were all wrong. You know, Delors was wrong. Thatcher was wrong. The moment you put together a monetary union without having first a democratic union, a fiscal union, a political union, you are not going to move towards uh, socialism. You see, People like Delors and François Mitterrand, who were social democrats, 
they had the, the very silly idea uh, that Thatcher believed also that, okay, you put to the, create a monetary union because you can't create a political union, it's just too hard, but you can, you know, just combine your monetary systems and have a common, common currency. And um, then when there is a crisis, when the crisis hits, and the crisis will eventually happen if you don't have a fiscal union, like it did in 2010, like it is happening today, then the politicians who are in charge, if they have a choice between disintegration and, um, and, and a union, a proper union, an Alexander Hamilton moment, the common debt and so on, they would choose the latter. That's what they thought, and that's what Thatcher thought, and that's why she didn't want it. But there is another economist, someone you know, I'm sure very well, Nicholas Calder, from Cambridge University, who in 1971 penned an article, exceptionally prescient article, in the New Statesman, I think it was 1971, in which he warned European politicians from a pro-European perspective. If you make the mistake of creating a monetary union before you create a political union, because you want to end up with a political union, and you think of the monetary union as a first step, the monetary union that you'll create will... Um, give rise to a massive crisis, and that crisis will create centrifugal political forces that will make a political union absolutely impossible. So I believe that, you know, history has vindicated Calder and has condemned both Margaret Thatcher and those neoliberals who feared socialism in Europe as a result of the euro, as well as the social democrats who wanted it. Uh, they, these people, I think they are damned by history. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. Back with more Varifakis after a musical break. Some of Beethoven's Spring Sonata, the first movement, performed by Itzhak Perlman and Vladimir Ashkenazi. I'm trying to remember that this is the season of rebirth amidst all the gloom. And now here's the second part of my interview with Yanis Varoufakis. I've heard you quoted, and I don't know if this is true or not, but that the, the Brits were right to vote for Brexit, but for the wrong reasons. Is that uh, an accurate quote? Yeah, I did say that. You know, as King Swan said, when the facts change, I change my mind. I fought against Brexit. And I don't regret it. I would fight against Brexit again and again and again, because Brexit was a political campaign uh, that uh, spearheaded xenophobia, that was all about ending freedom, freedom of movement, creating the fear or in, instilling the fear of the Turks entering the European Union and the hordes of the Muslims uh, riding up the M1 from London to Manchester. Uh, it was important to fight against Brexit. Uh, but... The more I think about it in recent years, especially now watching Europe burn as a result of the recalcitrant of the neoliberals in control of the European institutions. In the end, when we created the euro back in 1992, with people like Jacques Delors, whom I mentioned before, effectively we put the train of Europe on a rail track leading inexorably to a junction. And once we reached that junction, I think we have reached the junction, probably reached it some time ago, uh, there were only two tracks we could follow. One led to unification and the proper federation, like the United States or Australia for that matter. Another one led to disintegration. I think the Brits, both 
left-wing and right-wing Eurosceptics, uh, somewhere deep in their subconscious, realize that. Uh, some more, not so much in their subconscious, in their conscious as well. And they, they looked at the European continent and they said, well, do we think that these people are going to choose unification? Or are they going to insist on business as usual, which is going to lead to a kind of disorderly disintegration? Turns out they were right. It's the latter. The European politicians, ruling elites, are continuing to insist that the, the, you know, the business can be maintained as usual when it can't. And the result of that is a very messy disintegration. So bailing out was not such an irrational thing on behalf of the Brits. But uh, the disintegration could lead to uh, a horde of very nationalist right-wing states uh, as, as this uh, internationalist project disintegrates. Indeed. That's why I said I don't regret fighting against Brexit. That is why I disagree with left-wing friends of mine uh, who turn exiting from the European Union into their own project. We don't. DiEM25 and I personally, you know, prefer to die than to adopt an exit strategy as our strategy and to adopt the ideology of exiting the European Union. Uh, so what we do is to say, OK, here's how you save the European Union. Number two, the European Union needs to be saved because if it doesn't, that is going to unleash toxic nationalism, as you said this very moment, Doug, quite correctly. And we believe that, you know, that would be an, a dystopic future for all of us, for all Europeans. This is why we need to fight to save the European Union. But how do you save the European Union? You don't save it by saying yes to all the inanities that come out of the Eurogroup. Um, it is the Eurogroup. It is those who are trying to maintain business as usual that are absolutely destroying the European Union. They are the best handmaidens of people like Matteo Salvini and Orban and Marine Le Pen, those politicians from the nationalist xenophobic right that have made it their life's work to disintegrate the European Union. And what about the EU and the freedom of movement? There are people on the left who say that uh, the free movement of people actually undermines the strength of the working class, that it imports uh, competition and lowers wages. Uh, even Bernie Sanders has said things uh, to that effect. What do you say to that, that the freedom of movement is actually anti-working class? Well, we have a very clear position on that. We've written it uh, in black and white, and we have opposed that position. We consider this position to be analytically wrong and politically toxic. And I say that with a lot of uh, trepidation and, uh, and regret that my friend Bernie Sanders uh, dared say, I believe it was on CNN, that uh, it's a Koch brother's uh, Open Borders is a kind of Koch Brothers or Koch Brothers, I'm not sure how you pronounce them. Koch. Uh, a Koch, Koch Brothers uh, agenda. I disagree entirely. Uh, a lot of my left-wing friends point, uh, like, you know, love, love to wield uh, a letter that Marx wrote once uh, to somebody in New York uh, mentioning the Irish migrants to London and how they are being exploited. And the result of that is that, uh, you know, wages of in, indigenous Englishmen in London suffer. Uh, but they forget to read the next paragraph in which uh, Karl Marx is explicit in uh, uh, his uh, recommendation. His recommendation is not that you put up borders and stop the Irish from coming to England. His recommendation is that we have trade unions that are internationalist and that could coordinate activities across different countries so as to push wages up everywhere. So we are of that view. We are of the Karl Marx real view, the one that is not uh, unveiled by those who stick to the, to the first, to the opening paragraphs and, and not to the second part of the letter. So where, where's DM 25 now? Have, have, have you changed your attitude towards the EU at all? Is it unreformable uh, or um, are you still uh, hoping to uh, change it from within somehow? No, we haven't changed. We're a, bit, a little bit more pessimistic. How can we not be, given what we are seeing these days? Uh, but we, we never believed that the European Union should be reformed. because I, I have uh, a lot of experience of how impossible it is to change the minds of those who are in Brussels and who are running the show on the basis of solid arguments. They are really not interested in arguments at all. So it's not a question of, you know, changing their minds uh, 
you know, the expression, I, I can never change someone's mind when their salary depends on not changing their minds. Uh, uh, so we never, we never, uh, we never uh, use the, the language of reform. What we said was that through conflict, class conflict, political conflict, through disobedience, governmental disobedience, which I tried to practice in the Eurogroup by saying, no, I'm not signing on the dotted line of this. Here are my conditions and I'm, you know, you can kill me, but I'm not going to sign on this bailout fund, for instance. And we can transform the EU. But, but is this not how politics works? Um, the trade unions of the 19th century in Britain, uh, of the 20th century in the United States, did they believe that, uh, you know, the state of Britain was reformable, that it could be reformed through argument and through, you know, just consensual means? No, they believed in conflict. They believed in striking. They believed in long marches. They believed in clashing with the establishment uh, and transforming the institutions through uh, clear-headed conflict based on rational thinking. Now, that's what we believe we should do in the European Union. We're not going to say, well, let's bring down the European Investment Bank because it's a, it's a, con it's a kind of institution we should want to have, even if we didn't have it. Uh, what we want to do is we want to transform the way it is being used. We're not going to do this simply by having a think tank that comes up with a fantastic research paper that people in the EIB or you know in Brussels or wherever uh, read and say, oh, this is a good idea, let's do that. No, we do it through clashing. But that's the transformative power of political conflict. I'm speaking with the economist and anti-austerity campaigner Yanis Varoufakis. Now, do you see the uh, European Investment Bank as a possible vehicle uh, uh, for funding a European Green New Deal? Oh, yes, absolutely. We've been, I've been saying this now for 20 years. Um, it, it, it is. It, it is, you know, the, it has all the uh, machinery in place to do it. It's um, the only institution that issues a Eurobond. Because, you know, the bonds issued by the European Investment Bank are solid bonds. They're not, they're not CDO-like bonds. They do not comprise of different parts guaranteed by different countries at different interest rates and with different default rates. So here you've got an institution that issues debt on behalf of the whole of the European Union in order to create investment flows. That's splendid. We should create that from scratch if we didn't have it. Uh, I was a governor of the EIB for a few months, and I can tell you that the people in there including German members of the IB, were very open to the idea of a Green New Deal. They wanted it. What they didn't have was a green light from the political authorities. They did not have the green light from uh, the European Union Council. Uh, if they got a green light, I think they would very gladly uh, be the main financial hub for a Green New Deal. Would such a um, mechanism be operated on uh, standard uh, economic grounds of uh, rationalizing profit and loss, or would there be uh, more of a social uh, guideline uh, to how you would, uh, would, would run a, a Green New Deal through the European Investment Bank? You see, I think that, answer, that question has already been answered a long time ago. A friend of mine, uh, you may have heard of him, he used to be a member of parliament in, uh, in Britain a long, long time ago, Stuart Holland, and a great economist. He was instrumental many years ago in uh, scripting part of the charter of the European Investment Fund, which is um, effectively a, an appendix of the European Investment Bank. And the European Investment Fund um, has a remit for funding health, education, and urban renewal. Now, that's almost everything. Come to think of it, right? So the charter is already there if you want to, if, you know, if the political will um, so the, the answer to your question is a combination. The IB should make commercial loans, um, loans uh, to um, regional governments, to local governments, to national governments, to companies on banking principles. And at the same time, a percentage of its war chest should be thrown at uh, common problems uh, in order to create common goods. All right, let's turn to uh, Greece uh, for a bit. You have a pretty terrible government right now, right? You know what? I'm going to refuse to say yes, even though I want to say yes. It's a very right-wing government. They're awful in the way in which they have urbanized themselves vis-a-vis -vis refugees and they're weaponizing racism in order to gain popularity at the time of discontent, especially vis-a-vis -vis the refugee issue. 
and uh, the clash with Turkey on the northern border, our border with Turkey. But having said that, they're not worse than the previous, you know, my comrades who stayed after the referendum of July 2015 and simply pushed through parliament everything that came to them by fax or email from the Troika. They are doing more or less the same stuff as uh, the previous so-called uh, radical left-wing government was doing uh, when it comes to the policies that affect everybody's lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it is the xenophobic, right-wing, you know, anthropological nastiness that makes this government worse. But when it comes to actual economic policy, you know, Greece is a, is a vassal state. We don't have economic policy. Whichever government is, is there, as long as it says yes to the troika of lenders, uh, they're simply um, doing as they're being told. Even calling them a government is a great compliment to them. I noticed you, uh, maybe it was an interview with Jacobin, um, you were talking about um, this coalition between um, oligarchs and the upper middle class uh, to uh, uh, create this vulture economy, these financial markets buying non-performing loans, uh, underwater mortgages. Yeah, yeah, talk about what that's all about. Well, 10 years of uh, Great Depression have left, have left the banking system in smithereens. The, if, if, if you think that you know, more than 50% of the loan book of our banks um, is, uh, uh, you know, are non-performing loans, red loans as we call them here in Greece. You re realize that these banks are only zombies. They're only functioning because they are kept alive on a drip feed by the European Central Bank for the purpose that they control politics by telling politicians, look, your banks are dead. We're keeping them on a drip feed. The moment we pull the plug, they're, they're gone. So, you know, your political power disappears with it. Uh, so we have, that's why I'm saying that Greece is a vassal state, but that is connected to the non-performing loans. So um, half the Greek population now have, um, you know, are, are, are underwater, to use your expression. They have uh, loans that they cannot service and house prices that are well below the nominal value of their loans. Uh, and in this country, unlike the United States, you can't just give the key over to the lender and say, I don't want this house, I can't repay it, goodbye, I'm off. Even if you do that, you know, your debt is still your debt. You actually in inherit it to your kids, even if you die. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's 19th century, you know, Victorian poorhouse conditions. You die, your kids inherit your debt and they end up in the poorhouse. So, you know, the, the, the European Union pretending to resolve this, this issue and to cleanse the books of the banks they did what they always do. They introduced uh, legislation that forces the banks, in a sense forces them, they don't even want that, to sell off their non-performing loans to funds. Funds that are mostly registered in the, great, in, in the great state of Delaware. Some of them are in the state of New Jersey. Uh, and so they, those funds come, they buy those loans at 5%, 6%, 7% at most of face value. So you have a, a 100,000 euro uh, loan mortgage. Uh, the house uh, that um, was purchased on the basis of that mortgage used to be worth 200,000, now it's worth 30,000. Uh, so if, if that, the mortgage owner um, has lost their income, they are in dire straits, they cannot m meet the payments. So a fund, a voucher fund comes and purchases that loan for 8,000, 9,000. And of course they have every incentive to, to, you know, to throw you out, repossess the house, auctioned off. If they can make 30,000 out of an investment of 7,000, that's a pretty obscene profit level these days in the international capitalist economy. Uh, but of course, by doing this, they increase the supply of housing in the real estate market. So they keep pushing down all the other house prices and therefore the collateral of the other banks uh, goes down as well. So it's a never ending cycle of doom, um, which also produces homelessness. Some of these loans are business loans. There may be a little shop that employs two people. If a voucher fund has purchased the loan of that shopkeeper, effectively that shop closes down, two people lose their jobs, maybe three with the owner. That means uh, 
unemployment benefits that the state has to purchase to to, to pay for the, the state then has to tax even more heftily in order to recoup that money then other businesses close down then the non-performing loans uh, multiply you realize what a kind of you know, tragedy we're talking about here um, and yet those who purchase the NPLs of the Greek banks make a mint. They make profit rates that one could not make in the United States, even before the coronavirus hit. Uh, so this is the great paradox of Greece. It's, uh, as I keep reminding people, it's not an accident. The paradox is a Greek word. On the one hand, the bankruptcy of this place is uh, deepening. And yet those who invest in financial products in this place uh, make the highest profit rates in the world. It's a kind of disaster capitalism, if you want. Okay, and finally, um, what's next for DM25? Uh, how are you approaching this uh, viral crisis and, uh, and the recovery from it? Firstly, we put forward the only proposals that, uh, at least to us, make sense. Like um, two weeks ago, we came up with an alternative to all the silly things that were com was coming out of Brussels. We said, look, you really want to deal with this crisis? Okay, on the one hand, you need to have this investment new deal that we, you and I just talked about, so I won't repeat it, you, based on the European Investment Bank. Um, but, okay, we don't have a federal treasury. Let the European Central Bank issue its own bonds you know, for 30 years. Uh, that would be something like one trillion. So we come up with proposals. And at the same time, by pointing out to people out there, the Greeks, the Germans, the Italians, the French, that, you know, these proposals are actually tangible. You know, they're actually moderate. They could, they could be implemented tomorrow morning. There's no legal issue because that's what we try to do, to find loopholes in the existing neoliberal legislation where our therapeutic, positive, helpful policies, you know, could actually be implemented legally. And we do that. And because you see, this is a very revolutionary thing to do. Some people call it reformist. It's not it's revolutionary because if you say to people, look, we could think, do things differently. Another world is possible. We could have socialism. Immediately they panic. They think, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> how do we go to socialism? But if you say to them, look, this is something the authorities could be doing today, which would make life better for everyone, except for some vultures. And it's legal. And it is within their, their remit. Why are they not doing it? Yeah. Then when they realize that this is true, they say, hang on a second, why are they not doing it? Then they get angry. This is a, a virtuous anger that can be harvested by progressive movements in order to create the momentum that only the fascists have at the moment. Of course, the oligarchs say that in some sense it is a kind of road to socialism and that's why they don't like it. Yeah, but they can't actually argue that it is illegal or that it is infeasible. It is both legal and feasible. So then they will have to come out and tell the truth that they don't want it because it's not in their interests. Okay, that's, that suits me fine. Let them admit that because usually eh, the oligarchy never says, oh, we don't want this because it doesn't suit us. They usually uh, either raise legal objections or constitutional objections, uh, ethical objections, or they oppose it on the basis of the common good not being served by what you are proposing. It's still, we're still back in the, uh, the land of Tina. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> I was Yanis Varoufakis, the economist, anti-austerity campaigner, and member of the Greek parliament. For more about the Democracy in Europe movement, see their website, dm25.org, d-i-e-m-25.org. And now a bit of comic relief. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the CNBC screaming head Jim Cramer. Cramer is most famous as a high-volume stock tout, but he has a political past. Here's a clip from his appearance on CNBC back in October 2009. As Wall Street was recovering from the financial crisis, but most of the country, much of the world in fact, was still broke and angry. As Kramer says, he was a member of the Spartacist League, a small Trotskyist formation known for its ornery militants. It's funny how he still seemed to have a bit of that revolutionary spark in him. The CNBC anchor certainly did not know what to make of him. Jim Kramer. What did you think about John Mack's answer to the big question of the day, which is... The divergence between Main Street and Wall Street. We see Dow 10,000 bonuses are back at the same time Main Street is in, is in a shambles. I was a Spartacist when I went to college, and I took a, went for a master's degree in communism, and we learned these things. I took, uh, <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I took seven courses in communism, 
Uh, Lenin, when he came in in 1917, felt that the bankers were making much too much money and confiscated all their wealth. Uh, the peasantry felt terrific about it. The peasantry reacted Harvard positively. Harvard had seven courses in communism yes, when and then you were I took, an undergrad? and then I took several at City College. Hmm? And, you know, th- it traced out well, and the peasantry was rejoicing, and the bankers, many of them were killed, and there was a terrific terrific surge of, of opinion that Lenin was a great man. It didn't work out it, it in the long didn't run, work though. Out. Now, but, I, you know, it's very easy for me to come on. I could do that. I know that rap. I studied it. I know most of Lenin's speeches during the period, including what is to be done, which I committed to memory in the first, in the first chapter. And it's really about stringing up guys like John Mack and then feeling great about it. And we studied it. It, it didn't work, okay? Mm-hmm. But it did happen. All right. Yeah. It's a, and it was really because the people a in mainstream, people yeah. in Main Street were doing very poorly. As a matter of fact, the peasantry was doing really hard. But of course, then Stalin annihilated the peasantry in the next act. But you know, it looked, we played it out. And if people want to do it, that's fine. It didn't work. And I'm not being facetious. I mean, that's what we did mm-hmm. in the Soviet Union. I mean, that's what I studied, and that's what I thought at the time when I was in yeah. callow youth was a good idea. Yeah. Because I felt that the disparities, and the fact that I was living in my car at the time, and the fact that I had no money, it seemed justified. But you know what? Justification of what makes someone makes and someone doesn't shouldn't rest on the idea that I was living in my car, drinking too heavily, had an axe next to me, and I had a shock. I was poor, and I studied what Trotsky had to say, which, by the way, he would be in favor of the workers owning the production. And I studied Lenin, and, you know, I was very caught up in this okay. notion that the peasantry should win. But, you know, the peasant just didn't work. Speaking of the peasantry winning, let's give them some trades. What do you well, think? Well, peasantry, oh, I mean, it's like a sack of potatoes. Do a little ankles work here. L- L- and I'm not talking about money. <laughs> um, all right. I'm, not, L- I'm being serious. L- I mean, go read no, what I is know. to be done. I know. He's got the handbook for all the people who are complaining. We can put it into place. We can. I, I wanted to. Yeah. I wanted to do for 10 years when I was poor. Yeah. Okay? It was a great satisfaction. That was Jim Cramer, the CNBC screamer, recalling his days of carrying an axe and studying Lenin. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this some more from Beethoven's Spring Sonata, the fourth movement, performed by Itzhak Perlman and Vladimir Ashkenazi. Till next week, bye. <laughs>